0: Desperation. That's the only way you can sum it up. Desperation. That's one word that's perfect to describe the current state of the Democratic Party and their dismal hopes for victory in the majority of the elections around this country coming up next month in the early November. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one. Of three easy ways, you can either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store and simply search out The Jamie Dury Show. We're prominently listed in both Play Stores. Or you can download the free Podbean app in either of those two locations because podbean.com is the hosting service we use. And you can search out The Jamie Dury Show on the Podbean app and subscribe that way. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you can leave comments, leave reviews, Uh, rate us with a star rating and recommend us to other people and we desperately hope that you do that because the more you do that the faster the show will grow and you can always email me at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com that's jamiedury1776 at gmail.com so if there's a question you'd like me to answer or a topic you'd like me to do a show on, by all means, contact me that way. So why do I say desperation is abounding in the Democratic Party? Well, there's many things to look at. But some of the things uh, are most obvious. When you see desperation from the top down, that's a pretty, pretty telling example. And from the top down, I'm referring to Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden, senile old son of a gun that he is, uh, is definitely being told to do things because he can't make a decision. He's incapable of making a decision. He's confusing candidates. He's confusing office. He forgets that he's the president. And he still thinks he's a senator. It's clear to everyone he's senile, and it's, it's very, very sad that the press in the United States seems not at all concerned about this, doesn't mention anything about it, doesn't say, hey, who's really running the country? Because clearly he's not. They want you to believe it just doesn't happen, and this is the way they're doing everything. You can't mention anything about election fraud in the 2020 election because if you do, you are, according to the self-appointed disseminators of truth, Facebook and YouTube, etc., Google, you are preventing, uh, you are promoting disinformation. So therefore, they prevent you from uploading these things on YouTube. So by by eliminating the forums through which people can legitimately post evidence of these things, they are removing discussion of these things from the public lexicon. And therefore, this is how they try and get off with the uh, illusion that there was no fraud because any mention of fraud is simply not allowed to be discussed. Therefore, if you're mentioning it, you must be some sort of nut. So that's what's going on there. But uh, most people are beginning to see this The numbers of Joe Biden are tanking so badly, they're probably about as low as that of any president has ever had at a similar time during their presidency. Depending on which poll you look at, Biden, the most favorable poll is Rasmussen, which gives him a 44% approval and 54% disapproval. The rest of the other polls I'm looking at here, American Research Group, Emerson College, Ipsos, and YouGov, all give him either 39 or 40 percent with a 54 to 55 percent disapproval rate. Now, that may not sound that bad, but it is. It is bad when you consider that Donald Trump and other Republicans may have had similar numbers or slightly better, but that is in the wake of of an entire media marshaled against them, subjecting the American population to a veritable deluge of negative information about them. The U.S. press corps did not stop until they had driven George W. Bush's approval ratings down into the 30s with having negative stories about him every single day. Flip that around with Joe Biden Despite their attempts to prop up this teetering old fool and making no negative comments about him whatsoever, they can't do enough. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty Biden back together again. He's still slipping into the 40s. So this is an artificially inflated approval rating, and the best he can do is in the low 40s and maybe just about 40 or the upper 30s, as the majority of them have. If he was subjected to the same sort of assiduous criticism that was visited upon his contemporaries like George W. Bush and Donald Trump, this man's approval rating would be in the low 30s. It wouldn't surprise me if it hit the upper 20s. So, this is a very telling thing. So, now how do we know that they're becoming desperate? Well, last month, Joe Biden decided arbitrarily that all the working people in America who pay taxes, uh, who paid off their student loans should now pay off the student loans for a bunch of deadbeats who decided to go to college and borrow other people's money to acquire degrees in areas with no hope of landing any sort of gainful employment. I've always fondly told the story of uh, a member of uh, Occupy Wall Street who had been a New York City school teacher you think you would have known better, but this is the type of intellect that's teaching your children. Became disenchanted with teaching art in too crowded a classroom, left, took a year's leave of absence, borrowed money to get a master's degree in, wait for it, puppeteering, and then was shocked that he was unemployable as a puppeteer. And when he went back to ask for his old job back, his principal said, I'd love to have you back. But at my budget constraints now, I can only take you back part-time. So he ultimately went back, working for 50% of the money he had been working for. And this, of course, was the fault of Occupy Wall Street. It wasn't, I mean, the Wall Street people. It wasn't the fault of this idiot himself who decided that he would spend $35,000 getting a master's degree to get a degree from some institution about puppeteering, which is something that most people would probably have picked up on the side someplace at Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus uh, when they were still in business. And they were still in business at the time that he obtained this degree. So he's trying to buy votes as Joe Biden by forgiving people's student loans. Now, he thinks he's going to buy votes by emptying the jails. Uh, Ahead of the midterm elections, he's now issuing furious numbers of pardons for marijuana offenses. The statement here that Biden is saying, because obviously it's written for him, he's not saying anything. He certainly isn't thinking anything. No one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. Sending people to prison for possessing marijuana has upended too many lives and incarcerated people for conduct that many states no longer prohibit. Criminal records for marijuana possession have also imposed needless barriers to employment, housing, and educational opportunities. He went on to say that minorities are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement for marijuana cases. Now, juxtapose that to the Joe Biden that I used to know back in the 80s when he was a senator and he was one of the most hawkish on the drug war. He was one of the most pro-law enforcement pro-incarceration candidates there was. In 1989, when George Herbert Walker Bush was still president, this was pretty much the height of the anti-drug war. war. And people were incarcerating uh, police departments and prosecutors were incarcerating people at a mass rate. A lot of pressure uh, to stem the tide of illegal drugs that were flooding across our borders at that time. They still are, but they don't talk about it anymore. (coughs) And so, excuse me, a little cough. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was looking to escalate the war on drugs. And Biden was highly criticized, uh, critical of this escalation. Not because he was against escalation. The plan, he said, didn't go far enough. Quote, quite frankly, the president's plan is not tough enough, bold enough, or imaginative enough to meet the crisis at hand. He called not just for harsher punishments for drug dealers, but to hold every drug user accountable. Bush's plan, said Biden, doesn't include enough police officers to catch the violent thugs, not enough prosecutors to convict them, not enough judges to sentence them, and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time in, a direct call for more incarceration. Later on, as the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee in the late 80s and early 90s, I'm reading from this article on Vox.com, Biden did not just support the war on drugs and mass incarceration. He wrote many of the laws that helped build a punitive criminal justice system. That included measures that enacted more incarceration, more prisons, and tougher prison sentences for drug offenses, particularly crack cocaine. Much of this matched the rhetoric of the day when Democrats and Republicans in the 80s and 90s pushed for lengthier prison sentences and tough-on-crime policies in general to combat a crime wave and a crack cocaine epidemic. How far we have come. Now that Being hard on crime, tough on drugs, is an impediment to wooing the left leaning base of the Democratic Party. Now he wants to say it's all just a mistake. Really? Is it all just a mistake? Or is it just an inconvenient truth that you now want to backpedal on? Because people like Joe Biden have no morals, they have no position, they have no fiber. They say whatever they need to say in order to win the day. And so now he's seeking to buy votes by pardoning people. Um, First, I'm announcing a pardon of all prior federal offenses of simple possession of marijuana. Adding, I'm urging all governors to do the same with regard to state offenses. What Biden did not explain was that very few people go to prison for simple possession of marijuana. That's true. Very few people go to prison for simple possession of marijuana. In fact, according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, there were 36 people in federal prison in 2021 for simple possession of marijuana. That was down from 1,877 in fiscal year 2015. So, they don't really do much with the possession of marijuana. So who are these people he's going to apart? And then we go back to the student loan cancellation. That he announced back in August. He's going to, um, well, the Department of Education will provide up to $20,000 in debt cancellation to Pell Grant recipients with loans held by the DOE, and up to 10000 in debt cancellation of non-Pell Grant recipients. Borrowers who qualify must make less than $125,000 a year. As an individual, or less than two hundred fifty thousand a year for married couples, um, no high-income individual or high-income household in the top five percent of incomes will benefit from this action. Well, last I checked, if you made up above two hundred fifty thousand, you were in the top five percent. So they're really flirting with this. Uh, they re- uh, the majority of people are going to get their get their debts forgiven, and given the number of people that have been unemployed and the Tremendous financial hits many people have taken since these COVID shutdowns. There's a lot more people than you think are going to get forgiven on debt. So all of this is going on. Meanwhile, the Democrats know that they need to cook the books in order to have any hope of not just simply winning, but surviving. And throughout the country, states are engaged in major litigation, and these things are going in the way of the Republicans left and right. In Michigan, Republicans won a major election integrity ruling against Michigan's Secretary of State. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson was ruled against by a state judge ahead of the midterms. The Republican Party and the Republican National Committee filed a lawsuit against her <clears throat> in a bid to invalidate new instructions that she handed down for election observers and challenges. The court of claims uh, run by Judge Brock Schwartzel ordered Benson's office to either remove a May 2022 manual or amend specific sections that he said violate state law and the Administrative Procedures Act, a federal law passed in 1946. So they're starting to get that noticed. In Ohio... Ohio voters now have to decide if non-U.S. citizens can vote in local elections. Now, think about that. Why do they have to decide on something that's already been decided by the United States Constitution? If you're not a citizen, you can't vote. But yet, on November 8th, Ohio voters voters in a referendum on the ballot will be asked to decide if non-U.S. citizens can vote. If this is passed, issue two... That's the, that's the uh, initiative, would change the Ohio state constitution. It proposes that only adult U.S. citizens who legally reside and are registered to vote in Ohio for at least 30 days can cast a ballot in future state and local elections. The current Ohio constitution states that every citizen of the United States of the age of 18 years and has been registered to vote for 30 days is entitled to vote in all elections. Well, that's pretty simple and unambiguous, isn't it? The state constitution doesn't say that non-citizens can vote. So why do they have to decide this? Because they're trying to see, by slicing it in, to, to uh, challenge this 30-day residency requirement, they're trying to also slip in to see if minorities, can, uh, if not minorities, if um, non-citizens can vote. Federal law prohibits non-citizens from casting ballots in federal elections. A 1917 ruling by the Ohio Supreme Court determined that the state constitution's home rule, which gives cities control over their local issues, provided municipalities permission to expand voting rights in city elections. Issue two would ensure that a city's home rule doesn't circumvent the law that only adult U.S. citizens can cast ballots. Now, I don't see this passing in Ohio. I see them say re, uh, reaffirming the fact that illegal aliens cannot vote. But the fact that this is being done just shows you how desperate they are to try and do these things. Very, very desperate. All around, races are tightening. Races are tightening in Oregon. Races are tightening in New York. Big GOP victories coming. In the epic Times, they reported today, uh, Democratic hopes to blunt a possible midterm wave of, of GOP victories looked dimmer after recent polling showed Democrats facing toss-up races in what was regarded as safe congressional districts in liberal Oregon, according to experts. Meanwhile, the once safely liberal New York governor's race is also rushing to a tipping point, falling away from Democrats. Prior to the redistricting this year, Democrats held the edge in Oregon, four seats to one in the northwestern liberal safe haven, an area that saw rioters take over downtown Portland. You know, just to uh, give a fair shake to Oregonians, uh, Oregon may be liberal as a whole because of the population of Portland, where a lot of the state's population is confined. The rest of the state is not liberal like that. It's actually a very, very conservative state in most of those outlying areas. After this year's gerrymander, based on the 2020 census, Democrats had expected to pick up an additional seat in Oregon, making five safe districts for the Dems and only one for the GOP. But Cook Political Report last week rated Oregon's 6th congressional district a toss-up at plus 4% for the Democrats joining Oregon's 5th district, which was only a plus 2-leaning Democrat. According to experts, Democrats are being weighed down by unpopular decisions. Hardy har har. Who would have thought it? So now the, the paper is speculating, is this going to be like their battle of the little bighorn? But it's a sign of how desperate Oregon Democrats are, it says, when they have to call the most unpopular president in history to rally the troops and energize their vote. And that's exactly what they did. Biden looks a lot more like George Custer than he does Barack Obama. Funny, funny, funny. But in any event, in Virginia and in New York, we have closing races, as I said. Uh, Amanda Iovino of the polling firm uh, WPA spoke to this. She compared the Democratic Party's prospects in Oregon to last year's race in Virginia, which saw Republican Glenn Youngkin capture the governor's mansion. The reason why I mentioned Virginia, even though the governor's mansion is not up for grabs this year, is because it is a harbinger, I believe, of things to come. Two things we learned, she said, from Virginia last year, is that the voters see politicians who pursue purely ideological agendas generally as corrupt, and progressive, progressive Democrats specifically as incompetent. Republicans who address concerns about corruption and incompetence, especially on the economy, crime, and education, the issues voters care about most, will put themselves in a position to score upsets. And that's what's happening. She added that something similar happened with the elections in New York last year. If you look, she said, what happened on Long Island. Long Island went red. And we'll probably go red again this year. She believes that the crime crisis created by bail reform laws in New York turned the electorate against the Democrats. And as a New Yorker myself, I can say without equivocation that that's absolutely true. Even in Manhattan, where I live, you can see people that I never would have thought would have been considering voting Republican are considering doing it. And they're being very quiet about it, but they are considering it because they just can't live this way anymore. They can't stand being besieged by homeless bums that are coming up there, not asking, but fairly demanding money in language that's almost couched like armed robberies. Uh, But as the governor's race is concerned, a Marist poll Uh, that was done over the weekend, showed that the race for governor of New York is now down to the tight mid-single digits among those likely to vote. Now, consider that just a month ago, the reported leads for this hoople, Kathy Hochul, um, were in the high teens. They had her leading like by 18%. Now, all of a sudden, it's 4%. Well, we've seen this before. It's only one of two things or perhaps a combination of. The 18% lead never was real in the first place. As they get closer and closer to the election day, they have to bring the race in line. Otherwise, if they don't and things move against them, they look like idiots and their polls have no validity. So at least if they show that the race is four points or two points or one point and somehow... Hokel loses and and Zeldin wins, they can save face and say, well, we told you it was closing. We just didn't know how much it was closing. But they can't keep it up at 18 percent. Lee Zeldin is the congressman turned gubernatorial candidate in New York, and he enjoys high marks for his positions on crime, taxes and spending, according to the results of a poll released to the New York Post by a former pollster for Bill Clinton and Mike Bloomberg, the Schoen-Cooperman research firm, quote, we are seeing a movement towards Zeldin, but he's still behind. He's down between five to eight percentage points on four different polls. He's moving in the right direction, but this would be, an, would be the upset of the night if he were to win. Now, let me tell you something. As a lifelong New Yorker, I do believe that Zeldin is going to win, and I'm going to tell you Why? If you've never been to New York, or if you've been here in times of plenty, and you haven't been here lately, or you haven't been here since COVID, or you haven't been here since uh, the idiot previous governor, de Blasio, was running things, and now Adam's taken over, you have no idea what New York has become. New York has become a veritable sewer, and it's spreading throughout the entire state. Homeless are everywhere. Unemployment is rampant. Although they say that Real estate prices have rebounded. I'm, I'm dumbfounded as to who is paying these prices and where are they getting the wherewithal to do it, unless it's just a, a few people uh, that were involved in tech companies that are buying stuff up. I see bums everywhere. I see people struggling. Uh, my wife and I are not in the position that we once were, and if it were not for the fact that our son uh, is in a very, very good high school in New York City, it's a public school, we would not still be in New York. We would be gone. It's such a good school that we can't deny him the opportunity. But the day after he graduates, we're gone. Uh, these shadows don't change. And even if they do, I'm just, I've just had it with New York. You can't do it anymore. And people who have lived here all their lives and were diehard Democrats, they just can't stand having to walk out in fear, getting shaken down by these bums. Uh, people are slapping. When they see cops getting walked up to from behind and cold cocked, when they're trying to help someone, people see that and they say, well, if the cops can't protect themselves, how are they going to protect us? You're going to have a flight. A million and a half people have left New York state in the last 10 years, 350,000 since COVID. If Kathy Hochul wins re-election, you're going to have an additional exodus of Republicans, which will so skew the electorate that you will never be able to get anything other than a Democrat elected in New York again. And that will automatically sentence New York to an an abysmal future, and it will forever be a sewer. Nothing will ever resurrect it. The big Democratic gamble uh, on the abortion issue after the Supreme Court is backfiring. Uh, What's happened in races and nationally is that Democrats have overestimated the turnout that abortion could create for them against the GOP while ignoring the big issues, the sort of kitchen table issues they talk about that decide elections. Abortion is a passionate issue, but it's passionate on both sides. So you may get people who are pro-abortion that are passionate and want to come out and vote against people who are uh, anti-abortion, but you're going to get people who are anti-abortion who are also passionate and going to come out. So it's sort of a of a, of a kill switch. It sort of knocks, cancels each other out. They're just, Democrats are always more angry and they're more loud, they're more vociferous on, uh, in their, in their defensive. It doesn't mean that other people aren't silently equally as passionate. And the bigger scale of things, if you ask people in their hierarchy what's their biggest concern, things like crime, bail reform, the economy, gas prices going up, not being able to buy what we need. Those are much higher on people's list of concerns than abortion is, believe me. Abortion isn't going anywhere. There are many states that are still going to have it, and the Supreme Court did not outlaw it. They simply said it's not a federally guaranteed right. That was fantasy. It's an issue that should be decided by the states, and the majority of states in this country are going to keep it. In more than enough states, people can go to, to get an abortion. You're not going to have to go to a doctor or above a drugstore and get your baby aborted with a coat hanger. if That's what you were predisposed to do. This is just fear-mongering on the part of Democrats. Now, the other thing that I think that could help push Lee Zeldin over the edge and propel him to the governor's mansion is that Trump just endorsed him. Now, you can say what you want, but the fact of the matter is, again, you're getting misinformation, like I said in the the beginning of the broadcast. Uh, People want you to believe that the party doesn't want Trump bullshit. The party does want Trump as far as the people are concerned. I'm not talking about the hierarchy of the party leaders, but the Republican base wants Donald Trump. And there's no other way to explain the fact that every time he endorses someone, he has an overwhelming win percentage. I think he's like 96% or 95% uh, victories for the people he endorses. So, Obviously, if the Republican voter base did not like Donald Trump, they'd have no reason to vote for the people that he endorses. They would probably vote against him. But they're not doing that. They're voting for them. And even though New York is a liberal state, it's not as liberal as California is. And Larry Elder did pretty well in California. Things have been run a little differently, and the Republican Party had given him a little more help. He probably would have beaten Newsom. Newsom only won by five points, and that's an uber-liberal state. New York, when you leave New York City and the adjoining counties, like you have uh, Nassau County is the first county on Long Island. Suffolk is more conservative. Westchester used to be conservative. It's now not so conservative. But Rockland and Orange and Putnam, every place else in New York State, very conservative. Those people come out in droves and they vote. I think you're going to see Lee Zeldin win. Trump said he's watched Zeldin for many years. He's a great, brilliant lawyer who was a must-see for others in Congress when they had a complex legal problem. So he was strong on the border. So I think this endorsement from Donald Trump is going to may just be the little push that Zeldin needs to push him over the edge. Um, On October 15th, Even real clear politics changed the New York gubernatorial race from lean Democrat to toss-up. So now it's a toss-up. And Zeldin seized on that train, telling voters, we only got 24 days to go. Let's flip our state red. The bail reform, crime in New York City, out of control. Overall crime rate jumped 15.2% in September. 15.2%. 11,057 crimes compared to just 9,596 the same month last year, last September. Burglaries, auto theft, grand larceny, biggest increases. First thing he said he's going to do if he gets elected is fire Alvin Bragg, who is the Manhattan District Attorney. And I think that will have a great reverberating effect throughout the state. It'll sober up that idiot Eric Adams in City Hall because he can be displaced by the governor in this state under our Constitution as well. And he's done nothing to eradicate crime here. Instead of sitting down with Bragg and pulling him into his office and reading the riot act, he's letting him run roughshod over everything. So I think we're going to see some good things happening. And also, the amount of corruption that has now been uncovered with Hochul, some of these no-bid contracts she gave out for pharmaceutical companies and vaccines to companies she had ties with or were friends with, uh, she is far from being as clean as the driven snow, not by a long shot. Other states, Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano is the Republican nominee, uh, and he just got an endorsement from one of the most unlikely of people. Yes, Trump has endorsed Mastriano, but Malik Obama- just endorsed Doug Mastriano. Malik Obama, for those of you who don't know, is the half-brother of former president Barack Obama, and he's just endorsed Doug Mastriano for governor of Pennsylvania. Quote, "If he's with President Trump, then I'm with him," said Obama in his post. Trump endorsed Mastriano in the primary race for governor earlier this year, saying that there's no one in Pennsylvania who's done more or fought harder for election integrity than State Senator Doug Mastriano. He said he's pro-Trump, he's America first, he's pro-life, he will fight crime, he supports the military. And this man is also an Afghanistan and Iraqi veteran, so he's, he's a, a good guy. And he's facing the Attorney General Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania for the gubernatorial race. Now, supposedly, a recent poll suggests that Shapiro is leading. How much he is leading, uh, I don't know. But he is, he is leading. But I think, again, that Mastriano may very well overcome it. If there's enough red wave, people voting down ballot Republican uh, and so forth in Congress and trying to change everything over, you may see uh, a lot of races that people thought were kind of toss up and might eke out a Democratic victory go the other way. So, But I, I found it very amusing that uh, President Obama's uh, brother uh, was a big Trumper. In fact, back in 2016, uh, because apparently he's an American citizen, uh, he wrote that he was coming back to the United States just to vote for Donald Trump, which is pretty amusing. And one last amusing thing, um, Shapiro the opponent of Mastriano, called him an anti-Semite. Over the last six weeks, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who was Jewish and the Democratic candidate for governor, has consistently asserted that Republican candidate Doug Mastriano is anti-Semitic. His campaign has sent countless press releases to the media promoting the claim He has appeared on MSNBC discussing how worried he is about Mastriano and his supporters, with his campaign orchestrating high-profile press conferences with politically engaged Jewish leaders, including far-left Democrat and State Representative Dan Frankel. Now, for his part, Mastriano uh, Mastriano has vehemently denied that he's anti-Semitic and said he rejects anti-Semitism in any form. But I think that the real joke here is on Shapiro, because after having gone to the lengths that he's gone to try and woo the public and convince them that Mastriano is anti-Semitic, it must have really been a real kick in the cojones when Mastriano was endorsed just the other day by Rabbi Joseph Kolakowski, who leads a Hasidic Jewish ministry and congregation Havoth Jair of Koblenz in northeast Pennsylvania. Quote, I have been taught my entire religious life to vote for the right person, not merely for those identifying with the same religion. We are not electing a religious leader, but a leader for the executive branch of the state government, Kolokowski said in a written statement. I am concerned about the blatant hypocrisy of espousing beliefs that contradict the basics of one's professed faith. Judaism is the original pro-life religion. The fact that Shapiro has the backing of one of the most dangerous eugenicist organizations, Planned Parenthood, should be sufficient for any God-fearing individual to detest his candidacy, no matter what religion one professes. Well, what do you say, Doug? You want to call the rabbi anti-Semitic because he called you out on your religious hypocrisy? Just saying. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.